Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you Hi everyone, welcome to episode 47 of Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm your host, Tori Telfer. I am your faithful correspondent, your friend if you'll let me. I'm the author of Confident Women, Swindlers, Grifters, and Shapeshifters of the Feminine Persuasion, which is a nonfiction book. Sometimes I have to remind people that my books are nonfiction, aka everything in them really happened, aka... If you're thinking that you're going to read them because you like fiction because it's not as scary as real life, then you're going to want to avoid my book. So, yes, I'm telling you not to buy my books if you fit in this certain category of people because I don't want to scare you. Honestly, I don't think they're that scary. I think they I'm going to say they're more twisty than terrifying, but my grandma thinks they're really scary. So I'll let you make up your own mind about that. Anyway, why, why am I down this rabbit hole? That's who I am. Um, if you're new here today... You're probably thinking, like, whatever, she's doing an episode on Casey Anthony. Like, that's no big deal. Lots of podcasts do that. But if you're old here, you know that this is a really big deal. Because here at Criminal Broads, we never do famous cases, right? We always do obscure cases. And that is a decision I have made for us. You know I love an obscure case. You know I love to go into the archives and dig around. And in fact, when I'm choosing cases for this podcast, I will often think, Ooh, I'm pretty sure none of my listeners have ever heard of this. That's perfect. I love an obscure case. I don't like an overdone case. So why am I doing Casey Anthony? Well, the people have spoken, A. But B, I do think there is so much to be just like um, thought, thought over and like speculated on about these super famous cases, not just like the details of who done it and where and how, but how the cases have entered into society, how they've become part of the fabric of our daily lives, how they've become punchlines, how they've become memefied, how they endure, how we forget about them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is something that does not happen with obscure cases, right? The people that everyone's forgotten about, like many of the women on my podcast, they don't become cultural touchstones. They don't become memes. They are forgotten. But something like Casey Anthony, I mean, that this is a case that, like it or not, believe what you will about it. You can have a problem with the coverage of the case. You cannot know anything about what she's been up to the past 10 years. But you can't deny that this case has worked its way into our bloodstream as Americans and especially as true crime consumers. So I think it's worth examining. So here I am doing a famous case. Yay. It would be very helpful for me, actually, if you would let me know on Instagram or over email, criminalbroads at gmail.com. If you like the obscure cases or the famous cases, like if you have a preference one way or another, if you like a mix of them, that's cool. Um, You know, I would love to just get your temperature as listeners and sort of what your preferences are there. Okay, other housekeeping bits. You know that if you like this podcast, you can always leave it a review. That's always helpful. You can also always check out patreon.com slash criminal broads if you want to support the podcast, but no pressure. 
do not feel pressure. And speaking of financial matters, um, there's going to be an ad today. This podcast has a sponsor, which we'll hear from in a minute. And I've joined this fantastic network called Cloud10. I'm very happy to be on it. So um, there will be more. I mean... I'm not going to say there'll be more ads going forward because I've had ads for a while now, but um, there will be ads going forward. And I'm just telling you that in the spirit of transparency, I know like most podcasts have ads, but it can still be weird when like there's not ads and then suddenly there's an ad and then suddenly there's a lot of ads and what's going on. So that's what's going on behind the scenes here. And um, I'm excited because I think this will allow me to do some longer episodes. I have some schemes up my sleeve. You know I always have schemes up my sleeve. My sleeves are too long and and too full of schemes that I, I cannot always achieve all of them, but they're still there. Like, for example, once I had an Etsy shop where I sold vintage home goods, nothing to do with crime, and it was actually very... I mean, kind of successful. I'm only saying that so you know that I'm not as mad as a hatter for having an Etsy shop. And recently I tried to reopen it and my husband was like, you are going to regret that and you know you are. And I protested and I, I thought about it. And then finally I had to admit he was right. And so I put that scheme back into my sleeve where it waits for a future time. Um, okay. I think that's all. Let's take a break to hear from this episode's sponsor and then we're going to get into the story of the past decade of life in Casey Anthony's America. All right. Stay tuned. Let's take a moment to hear from today's sponsor and I just want to thank you all for supporting the sponsors that support Criminal Broads. It really means a lot. So, this show is brought to you by our show's new sponsor, BetterHelp Online Therapy. Guys, there are an awful lot of misconceptions out there about what therapy is. It doesn't have to be sitting around talking about your feelings if that is your worst nightmare. Some people's worst nightmare has to do with true crime and dark alleyways and people waiting in closets. Other people's worst nightmare involves sitting around or laying on one of those therapy couches telling someone about their feelings. If you don't want that out of your therapy, you don't have to do that from your therapy. Therapy can be whatever you want. It's up to you. Now, these days, we're in a pandemic. Uh, There's a lot of struggles going on. And it's hard to be truly happy and at peace without a healthy mind. So if you're interested in trying therapy and making it something that you want it to be, try BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, which is relatable. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours from right now. So join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And I mean that. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Criminal Broads listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Criminal Broads. So if you'd like this deal, go to B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Criminal Broads.
It's been 10 years since Casey Anthony was found not guilty of killing her little girl. She's kept her head down for most of the past decade, other than a couple of ill-advised interviews and a handful of grainy paparazzi shots. But she's never far from our minds. She pops up in the news about three or four times a year, and it's a pretty big deal every time. She's the subject of infinite TV specials with names like Casey Anthony, What Happened? and Casey Anthony, How Did We Get Here? and Casey Anthony, An American Murder Mystery and Casey Anthony, Her Friends Speak and Beyond the Headlines, The Casey Anthony Story. Of course, the tabloids are always keeping an eye on her, reporting scandalous rumors, fanning the flame of our obsession. But I want to clarify what I mean by obsession here. Casey Anthony is very much a part of our culture today. She's a punchline to many jokes. She's tweeted about regularly. She's a hashtag. And any true crime podcast worth its salt will eventually cover her. Wink, wink. But she's not relevant the way the pandemic is relevant the way the trial of Derek Chauvin is relevant. Our obsession with her has died way down since 2011, when she was on everyone's mind and in everyone's Google searches. If you go to change.org, for example, you'll find a series of petitions with names like Send Casey Anthony to Prison and Reopen Casey Anthony's Case and Keep Casey Anthony Off Our Beach. None of them have very many signatures, though. The last one has 14. That being said, people still get really riled up about her when they talk about her. It's been 10 years since she was found not guilty, and people are still making change.org petitions about her. So what do we do with all of this? Yeah, Casey Anthony is an odd figure in American society now. She's famous, but she's a pariah. Everyone knows her name, but nobody really knows what she's up to. And the oddest thing about her is that even though she has a reputation as a murderer, she's actually a free woman. Whether we like it or not, she walks among us. She's one of us. Sort of. There would be no Casey Anthony as we know her if there were no Kaylee Anthony. So let's start there with Kaylee, the little girl who was born on August 9th, 2005, to a 19-year-old mother. Kaylee was born into a world of lies. Her mom, Casey, had lied about being pregnant for as long as possible, even when she was visibly showing. Then she lied about who the father was. To this day... No one knows the truth about Kaylee's biological dad. Casey never really moved out of her parents' home in Orlando, Florida. After she gave birth to Kaylee, she mostly lived at home with her mom and dad, George and Cindy. Kaylee grew up there, and she was happy. Casey's friends say that Casey was a very loving mother, and Kaylee's grandparents adored the little girl. Kaylee liked green beans and 101 Dalmatians and Spider-Man and Elmo and tea parties and Bambi and swimming in the pool. Today, we think of Casey as this crazed party animal, but actually, Casey didn't party very much when she had Kaylee. Sometimes she couldn't find a babysitter, or she'd go out, but she wouldn't drink much. She'd be the designated driver. 
Other times, she'd tell her family or her boyfriend that she had found a babysitter. She'd say she left her daughter with Zanny the Nanny. What exactly that meant would become horrifically relevant and confusing later. Let's go to June 16th, 2008 now, the last day anyone saw little Kaylee alive. Cindy and George left for work at 7 a.m. and 2.30 p.m., respectively. George said that Casey and Kaylee left the house before he did, but if you look at the family's computer history for that day, it seems pretty clear that he was lying because someone using Casey's password-protected account was still on the computer that afternoon, long after George said that Casey had left. At 2.52, Casey's friend called her and they had a conversation that the friend later said was not normal. She told him that her parents were getting divorced and that she needed to find some place to live. About an hour later, Casey called her mother six times in four minutes. Her mother didn't answer. Then, Casey left the house and headed to her boyfriend's apartment. Later that night, cameras caught her walking around a blockbuster video with her boyfriend. There was no sign of her daughter. For the next 31 days, Casey was a party girl. She drank, danced, borrowed a shovel from her neighbor, participated in a hot body contest, got a new tattoo that read Bella Vita or Beautiful Life in Italian, and she lied and lied and lied about where her daughter was. She told her mother that Kaylee was with a nanny, that they were on a trip to Tampa, that their nanny had been in an accident, that she was staying with an old boyfriend, and so on. Now, these days, we do understand that grief can look different for everyone. A grieving mother doesn't always cry and tear her hair out. But everyone had to admit that this was not a good look for a mother whose baby was gone. Casey's month of freedom came to an end when her car was towed. She had left it in a parking lot for a couple of days, saying later that she'd run out of gas. Some people think she may have left the car in the parking lot intentionally to get rid of evidence. Anyway, her father, George, was actually the one who owned the car, and so he got a letter stating that his car was now at the impound lot. So George and Cindy went to the lot to drive their car home, and George walked up to the car to inspect it. He was struck by a strong smell coming from the trunk. He'd been a cop before, and he recognized that smell. It was the smell of death. He whispered, Please, God, don't let this be Casey or Kaylee as he opened the trunk. Inside, there were maggots and a bag of trash. George and Cindy drove their car home with all the windows open, and then Cindy confronted Casey, screaming at her, even trying to choke her. Still, Casey wouldn't tell her where Kaylee was, so Cindy called 911 three times, frantic. She said things to the operator like, I found out my granddaughter has been taken. She has been missing for a month. Her, her mother finally admitted that she's missing. She said, there's something wrong. I found my daughter's car today and it smells like there's been a dead body in the damn car. The operator asked to speak to Casey and Casey got on the phone and said, my daughter's been missing for the last 31 days. I know who has her. I've tried to contact her. I actually received a phone call today, now, from a number that is no longer in service. I did get to speak to my daughter for about a moment. The operator asked, why are you calling now? Why didn't you call 31 days ago? And Casey replied, 
I have been looking for her and have gone through other resources to try to find her, which was stupid. Of course, everything Casey was saying was a complete lie. The next day, she was arrested. Everyone involved in the case admitted that Casey Anthony was a liar. Her defense lawyer admitted it. Even Casey herself admitted it. Casey had a history of lying. She'd lied about her pregnancy. She'd lied about graduating high school. She lied about her parents getting divorced. She was a committed liar. She would lie up until the very last possible second. Right before she was arrested, she led investigators on what was basically a game of chicken. She said she was taking them to her nanny's apartment, and then she took them to a vacant apartment where no one had lived for months. She told them she worked at Universal Studios, and she actually took them there, telling the security guard that she'd forgotten her ID, walking them into a building, waving at random people and pretending that they were her co-workers, and leading the investigators down a hallway before finally turning around and saying, I don't work here. Not only did she lie and lie and lie, but she didn't seem to care about things. Deputy Sheriff Carlos Padilla, who investigated the case, told a journalist, She has shown no emotion. That's unusual. At the time of the interviews, she didn't seem concerned, and that made this case much stronger. She spoke to deputies like she was talking about baseball. How do you get through to someone like that? The day after her arrest, the judge also commented on her lack of care. She was ordered to be held without bond at the Orange County Jail in Orlando, and the judge told her, You left your two-year-old child with a person who does not exist, at an apartment you cannot identify, and you lied to your parents about your child's whereabouts. You cared so little about your child. At first, Casey was charged with child neglect, lying to investigators, and interfering with a criminal investigation. Then, three months after she was arrested, she was charged with first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter, and four counts of providing false information to law enforcement. Two months after that, in December of 2011, Kaylee's body was finally found in a wooded area not far from the Anthony home. By then... She was just bones. Casey's trial didn't begin until the spring of 2011, and it was the media circus to end all media circuses. Sweet, big-eyed Kaylee was the sort of victim that made people demand justice, and Casey was, to be frank, a hot psychopath. The tabloids went wild. Nancy Grace began covering the case obsessively. The prosecution insisted that Casey had intentionally killed her daughter in order to live a wild life of party girl freedom. They said that she'd poisoned Kaylee with chloroform, suffocated her with duct tape, and dumped her body in the woods. The defense countered that narrative with a wild narrative of their own. They said that Kaylee had accidentally drowned in the family pool and that George and Casey had covered it up together. Why hadn't Casey called 911 the second she found her daughter in the pool? Because, said the defense, Casey was trained to lie as she had been sexually abused by her father. 
Now, the prosecution brought in as much evidence as they could. They brought in a hair from the trunk of Casey's car that seemed to be Kaylee's hair and that showed signs of decomposition. They brought in a controversial expert witness who testified about the actual odor in the trunk of Casey's car and said that there were molecules in the air that were consistent with the molecules released by a decomposing body. They talked about an internet search for chloroform that had been made on the family computer a few months earlier. They showed the jury photos of Kaylee's skull, which had duct tape around the mouth, nose, and jaw. All of these things seemed incredibly damning, but the defense chipped away at them, bringing in their own experts to question the science. Sure, the defense never proved their opening statements that Kaylee had drowned or that George had abused Casey or any of the other things they declared. But remember, the burden of proof was not on the defense. And the prosecution's case was entirely circumstantial. There was no DNA proving that Casey killed her daughter. There was no murder weapon. There was no confession. And there was no cause of death. It was, as cops say, a dry bones case. If Kaylee's body had been found earlier, this story could have played out completely differently. But it wasn't. The death penalty was on the table. But the jurors were told that if they had any reasonable doubt about whether Casey Anthony had killed her daughter, they had to let her go. Casey Anthony was found not guilty on July 5th, 2011. Kaylee had died the day after Father's Day, and Casey was found not guilty the day after Independence Day. This was now another sort of American holiday, the trial by media. The public could not believe the verdict. People were outraged. Even the celebrities. What?! Casey Anthony found not guilty? I am speechless, tweeted Kim Kardashian, with 15 exclamation points and three question marks. Sierra tweeted, America! Ow! Even Benji Madden chimed in. Casey Anthony looks crazy, man. Like, real crazy. Like, street rat crazy. Cray-cray. $100 says she moves to L.A. in 30 days or less. Nancy Grace, who had been covering the case relentlessly since the beginning, declared, I'm not a preacher, and I'm not a rabbi, but there's something wrong with that. As the defense sits by and has their champagne toast after that not guilty verdict, somewhere out there, the devil is dancing tonight. There's no denying that this was an absolutely shocking verdict. It's easy to look back and think, what in the world was that jury thinking? The media and the public had made up their mind long before the jury did, and they were convinced that Casey was a murderess. But here's the thing. The jury was operating on a totally different standard than everyone else. That's how the jury was supposed to operate. And I think to this day, people forget that. Let's zoom out for a second. When it comes to cases, 
We, the public, are free to speculate and go with our instincts and take educated guesses or wild guesses when we look at these cases. We are free to make up our minds about what we think happened. We look at Casey Anthony and we see a whole lot of red flags. We see a case where we think we are pretty sure that a mother killed her daughter either accidentally or on purpose. And we are free to talk about it that way. We are free to talk about what probably happened. And what probably happened is that Casey Anthony is guilty of child abuse at minimum and murder at maximum. But the jury is not allowed to vote on what probably happened. They have a huge burden, a burden much bigger than ours. They have to decide if the prosecution proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Casey Anthony killed her child. And the jurors in this case simply did not think that the prosecution proved that. Remember, this was a dry bones case. It was entirely circumstantial. Even though Casey Anthony looked guilty as hell, her jury felt that there wasn't enough proof to declare her guilty, especially since the death penalty was on the table. Another important thing to remember here is that Casey Anthony's jurors didn't actually think she was innocent, but being not guilty is not the same as being officially declared innocent. One of these jurors told ABC News, I did not say she was innocent. I just said there was not enough evidence. If you cannot prove what the crime was, you cannot determine what the punishment should be. This juror went on to say, Everyone wonders why we didn't speak to the media right away. It was because we were sick to our stomach to get that verdict. We were crying, and not just the women. It was emotional, and we weren't ready. We wanted to do it with integrity and not contribute to the sensationalism of the trial. Another juror told People magazine, Generally, none of us liked Casey Anthony at all. She seems like a horrible person. But the prosecutors did not give us enough evidence to convict. They gave us a lot of stuff that makes us think she probably did something wrong, but not beyond a reasonable doubt. When Casey was released from jail, she passed a group of protesters. They had been there all day, chanting, Kaylee, Kaylee, and holding up signs that said, Travesty of Justice. By the time Casey was released after midnight, about a hundred of them were left. They screamed at her. She kept her head down and walked fast. She was accompanied by two deputies with semi-automatic rifles because she'd already received plenty of death threats. There were people all across the country who were ready to give her the death penalty even if they had to do it themselves. She was alienated from her family since the defense team had painted her mom as a liar and her dad and brother as abusers. She was broke but she was free. In jail, she had written letters to a fellow inmate about what she was most looking forward to, about freedom. Girl, she wrote, I could use a day at Target myself, just to walk around the store, to be part of society. Casey wasn't done with the courts, though. She'd been acquitted of all her most serious charges, but she had been convicted of lying to the cops, shocker, and so she had to do probation. She did her probation in a secret location because of all those death threats. She was also haunted by lawsuits and would be for years. She'd told so many lies during the investigation that other people had gotten tangled up in her spiderweb, and now they wanted compensation for the particular brand of Casey Anthony Hell she'd put them through. 
The first lawsuit was from a woman named Zenaida Fernandez-Gonzalez, a.k.a. the real-life Zanny the Nanny, except not. Zenaida, the real Zenaida, had absolutely nothing to do with Kaylee's death. She didn't even know the Anthony family at all. But Casey had happened to use her very specific name when she told everyone that her nanny, Zanny, had kidnapped her child. What were the odds? There are a couple of theories about how Casey got this name. Once, the real Zenaida visited the same apartment complex as Casey, and Zenaida had filled out an information card and left it there. People also speculate that Zanny the Nanny was a nickname Casey used for Xanax, which she may have used to drug Kaylee so that she'd sleep a really long time. And podcaster Marcus Parks, of the last podcast on the left, has pointed out that the people who lived on either side of the wooded area where Kaylee's body was found were named Zenaida Almodovar and Peter Gonzalez. So maybe Casey just pulled the names of two of her neighbors out of a hat. But the real Zenaida Fernandez-Gonzalez was furious that she'd been dragged into this sordid media circus. She was a mother of six who started receiving death threats after Casey named her. She lost her job. She lost her home. And so she filed a defamation lawsuit against Casey. The second lawsuit was from an organization called EcuSearch. EcuSearch is a nonprofit search and rescue organization that's staffed by a lot of volunteers and it runs on donations and grants. They'd done a massive search for Kaylee and they'd spent a lot of money and manpower on it. And as it turned out, the search was a waste because Kaylee was never a missing person. She'd been dead the entire time. Casey had lied to them when she begged them to help her find her daughter. As EcuSearch's lawyer said, while they were searching for Kaylee, they got calls from other families for help and had to turn them away. Because of this, EcuSearch wanted $100,000 from Casey Anthony. That's how much they'd spent on the search for her little girl. The third lawsuit was from a man named Roy Cronk. He was a meter reader, and he'd been at the Anthony home in August of 2008, two months after Kaylee died. There, he thought he saw something suspicious in that wooded area, so he called the cops three times in three days. He already knew that Kaylee was missing, and he knew that the suspicious item he was seeing from a distance could have been Kaylee's body. The cops searched, but somehow they didn't find anything, which is mind-boggling, because Roy Cronk went back in December and found Kaylee's skull. This is one of the many infuriating details about the case. If the cops had found Kaylee's body in August, when Roy Cronk called them three times, maybe they would have been able to determine a cause of death, which could have changed the whole trial. So why was Roy Cronk suing Casey? Well, during the trial, her defense team had casually told the media that maybe Roy Cronk was the murderer. So now he was suing Casey for defamation. His lawsuit against Casey stretched on until 2020, but eventually both Zenaida and Roy Cronk lost their lawsuits. Casey reached a settlement with EcuSearch. Her luck in the courtroom was still untouchable. Outside of the courtroom, Casey Anthony had to hide. There would be no leisurely days at Target for her. She was a strange sort of celebrity. She was famous, she was hated, and she was broke. 
She filed for bankruptcy, saying she had only $1,000 in assets and almost $800,000 of debt, thanks to all her legal fees. When she did surface in the news, it was inevitably weird or scandalous, but a lot of the reports about her were just tabloid fluff. For example, People magazine insisted that Casey and Cindy had started wearing matching necklaces containing Kaylee's ashes inside them. Another time, the same magazine declared that a source told them that Casey's biological clock was ticking and that she wanted to have more children. This was all standard-issue tabloid fare, coming from sources, quote-unquote, designed to make people feel enraged and curious, designed to sell papers and get clicks. But it didn't really mean anything. It didn't change anything. People already hated Casey. They were already shocked by her. But then there was one news item that might have meant everything. On November 28, 2012, an Orlando newspaper published a piece with the headline, Cops, Prosecutors, Botched Casey Anthony Evidence. When investigators were working on the case against Casey, it was the aughts. It wasn't the dark ages of the internet, but it wasn't the brightest of the bright ages. And they made a huge mistake when it came to the internet. The sheriff's office had all the data from the Anthony home computer, and they sent the prosecutors all of the internet activity from the day Kaylee died, or so they thought. In reality, they only sent over 2% of the computer's activity that day. They sent over the activity from the Internet Explorer browser. But they never looked at or sent over the information from the browser that Casey used, the Firefox browser. Now, Casey's defense lawyer, Jose Baez, did see the Firefox browsing history from that day when he went through the computer records. And he saw that an extremely damning search had been made that afternoon. For the entire trial, he waited nervously for the prosecution to bring it up. But they never did, because they hadn't seen it. They hadn't seen that on June 16, 2008, the day Kaylee was last seen alive, someone logged onto the computer with Casey's password and searched foolproof suffocation. This person then clicked on an article that contained information about poisoning yourself and then putting a plastic bag over your head. This person then went to MySpace, one of Casey's favorite sites. It's impossible to say for sure if the jury would have voted differently if they'd known this information, if they'd known that someone in the Anthony household had searched online for foolproof suffocation the day that Kaylee died and had clicked on a website that described death by poisoning and suffocation, which is exactly how the prosecution argued that Kaylee died. Maybe it would have changed nothing, but maybe it would have changed everything. In 2013, the year after the foolproof suffocation news emerged, the big Casey Anthony update was that there was a Lifetime movie out about her case. No one paid as much attention to a smaller but much more horrifying news story out of West Virginia that involved a mother killing her toddler. The mom's name was Sharon Flanagan, and she was involved in a bitter divorce. Her husband had just been granted 70% custody of her two-year-old boy, and so she drowned her child in the bathtub. A few days before the murder, she'd gone online and searched common fatal toddler accidents. 
But Sharon Flanagan seemed to want more than just ideas for how to kill children. She seemed to want fame. Because she also searched, why is Casey Anthony so popular? And why are Americans obsessed with Casey Anthony? Sharon Flanagan didn't seem to understand what exactly Casey Anthony's popularity, quote-unquote, looked like, though. Sure, when Casey went out in public, paparazzi took photos of her, which might sound sort of appealing, sort of Angelina Jolie-esque. Once, paparazzi for the Daily Mail caught her jogging in a hat and big sunglasses, and the captions for some of the photos of Casey sounded like the same captions they might give any popular A-list actress. One of these caption reads, Fancy footwear. A pair of neon blue and green sneakers completed her casual, yet athletic, look. But these sightings were rare, because Casey really couldn't go out in public at all. One of her defense lawyers told CNN that Casey was basically trapped at home because of how much people hated her. She can't go to a beauty parlor. She can't go shopping to a department store. She can't go to a restaurant. She can't even go to McDonald's. She can't do anything, he said. People hated Casey so much that they hated him, her lawyer, too. He'd gotten death threats, and so had his family. Everyone who touched Casey Anthony's case got burned, at least a little. After her not-guilty verdict, her lawyers had gone out to eat, and people were furious at the restaurant that admitted them. People who get really worked up over this case often say that they just want justice for Kaylee. But was this kind of behavior truly a desire for justice for Kaylee? Is screaming at restaurant owners or threatening the lives of the family members of defense lawyers really a form of justice-seeking? Or is it just vengeance? Just a plain, old-fashioned thirst for blood? Part of what fueled the public's rage was that this case kept getting more and more salacious, even though it was technically over. In 2016, a private investigator who'd briefly worked for Casey's defense lawyer made a couple of explosive claims. The claims came out because Casey Anthony was in the middle of her bankruptcy case. And as part of that case, a couple of written statements by this private investigator were filed. And so that's how the public found out about them. Anyway, the investigator's name was Dominic Casey. And he swore that Casey Anthony had told her lawyer that she'd killed Kaylee. He also swore that Casey had been sleeping with her lawyer since she didn't have the money to pay him. The irony was that Dominic Casey, just like Casey Anthony, had a long history of lying. He had already popped his head into this case back in 2009 when he claimed that a psychic led him to find Kaylee's body. As we know, meter reader Roy Cronk actually found her body. In 2020, he made headlines again by claiming that he had found Hunter Biden's secret bank records. He's got a website, and it's full of conspiracy theories about politics and Hollywood and Russia. But, back in 2016, many of the news outlets that reported his allegations about Casey having sex with her lawyer didn't say anything about his history of lying. They just let his claims stand. To this day, it's not unusual to find, say, a true crime podcast talking about Casey Anthony and reporting these claims without questioning them at all. This is obviously irresponsible, but I also think it's telling, because it shows just how sordid the Casey Anthony narrative has become. When people hear, Casey Anthony had sex with her lawyer, they kind of just accept it, because it fits with the image of her that we know well, the sociopathic party girl. 
The fact that Dominic's claims didn't get immediately ripped apart showed just how America felt about Casey Anthony. What we felt about her was that she'd stoop to anything, that nothing she did could surprise us anymore. And then Casey did surprise us. In 2017, six years after her trial and nine years after her daughter died, she finally gave an interview to the Associated Press. Okay, so Piers Morgan actually claimed that she'd given him a phone call in 2012, but frankly, I don't believe him. Their phone call wasn't recorded, conveniently, and he had no explanation for why it wasn't recorded. It would be like me telling you right now that I talked to Casey Anthony on the phone yesterday, but I forgot to get it on tape. It's a claim anyone could make. But this interview in 2017 was legitimate. At the time, Casey was living in the home of the lead investigator for her defense team. She was working for him, doing minor investigative work like social media searches. One day, she went to a rally in Palm Beach to protest Donald Trump's presidency, and there she happened to meet a reporter for the Associated Press. And for some reason, she agreed to talk to him. Here's how the reporter described the interview. Her responses were at turns revealing, bizarre, and often contradictory, and they ultimately raised more questions than answers. She said that she hated being in the checkout line at the grocery store because sometimes she'd see tabloids with Kaylee on the cover. She showed the reporter her bedroom, which was full of photos of her daughter. She showed him Kaylee's artwork, and she cried. She also told the reporter that she empathized with O.J. Simpson and that she saw a lot of parallels between O.J.'s situation and hers. Of course, everyone saw parallels between Casey and O.J., but she seemed to be talking about different parallels than the rest of us saw. After the tabloids got a hold of this quote, In Touch ran a story saying they could exclusively report that Casey and O.J. were in secret talks to do a reality TV show together. Casey gave this confusing statement about why she lied to the cops. Even if I would have told them everything that I told to the psychologist, I hate to say this, but I firmly believe I would have been in the same place. Because cops believe other cops. Cops tend to victimize the victims. I understand now. I see why I was treated the way I was, even had I been completely truthful. Cops lie to people every day. I'm just one of the unfortunate idiots who admitted they lied. My dad was a cop. You can read into that what you want to. And then she gave a couple of garbled responses about what she thinks happened to Kaylee. Here's one. I did what I was told. I don't remember too much of what happened. Again, there were several psychological evaluations. Even after everything transpired, even months, even within a year, I don't have personal knowledge of these things because, and this isn't my belief, I read the evaluations, I wasn't present during whatever happened. At another point, she said, The last time I saw my daughter, I believed she was alive and was going to be okay, and that's what was told to me. As Nancy Grace and others pointed out, Casey couldn't keep her stories straight. Her defense had been that Kaylee had drowned and she had covered up the death out of panic. Now she was saying that she hadn't seen her daughter's body at all. But here's the quote from Casey that really made people furious. The quote that made its way into a thousand tabloid headlines. I don't give a shit about what anyone thinks about me. 
I never will. I'm okay with myself. I sleep pretty good at night. After Casey talked to the Associated Press reporter five times, she suddenly got spooked and she texted him saying that she didn't want to do the story after all. She mentioned her bankruptcy case and said that someone had purchased the rights to her life story for $25,000 and so she wasn't allowed to give interviews. This was, surprise, surprise, a total lie. In fact, the opposite was true. Casey had paid $25,000 to retain the rights to her life story as part of her bankruptcy case. The reporter ran the story anyway. The story generated so much media attention that it overshadowed a different interview, one that had been published just three days earlier. Casey's old judge, Belvin Perry, did an interview with the Orlando Sentinel in which he said that he thought Casey did kill her daughter and that he thought it was an accident. He also made the creepy observation that Casey had a two-sided personality. Casey, in the presence of the jury, was very calm, very easygoing, mild-mannered, and a very sympathetic-appearing person, he said. But when the jury was gone, she was quite in charge, quite demanding, and quite manipulative. There are all sorts of theories out there about how exactly Casey killed her daughter, whether it was premeditated or accidental, whether she used Xanax or chloroform, what she did with the car, why she was so damn unemotional about the whole thing. There are very few theories, however, that say she had nothing at all to do with it. Even Casey's parents say that their daughter was involved in Kaylee's death. They just don't call it murder. In 2018, they did several interviews and talked about what they think happened. Cindy believes that Kaylee accidentally drowned and Casey panicked and tried to cover it up, which was basically the defense's story. George believes that Casey drugged her daughter and caused her to overdose. During one interview, he said that he thought Casey had been drugging her daughter for a while. Kaylee was always a very healthy child, a very healthy girl, but there were times that she would sleep for 10, 12, 13 hours at a time. Makes no sense to me, he said. When I would see her from one day to the next, it was totally different. I could see a difference with blackness underneath the eyes and stuff like that. A two-and-a-half, three-year-old child would not have that unless something is going on. I believe she gave her something. Yeah, that's just my beliefs. Cindy still talks to her daughter, sometimes. George doesn't. That same year, Casey covered up her infamous Bella Vita tattoo. Inside Edition reported that the new tattoo was just visible on her shoulder, based on a grainy paparazzi shot. It was unclear what the new tattoo was, though. Casey's body, of course, had long been a subject of fascination. She was an attractive young white woman, and when her trial started, everyone saw her photo bucket account full of sexy pictures— Right after the trial, Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler, offered Casey Anthony half a million dollars to pose nude, saying, While there may be a group of people out there who think she's guilty of murder, you've got men that say, Hey, you know what? I want to see her in her birthday suit. So there may be some sick individuals, but that's what life's all about. End quote. Years later, Casey brought up the offer again in an interview with the Daily Mail. Apparently, she was still considering it. 
I like to think I have what it takes to pose in a girly magazine, she said. I work hard on keeping fit. Side note. To be honest, I'm a little bit suspicious every time the Daily Mail claims that Casey has given them an exclusive interview. The quotes from Casey are always a little too on the nose, a little too scandalous. They also say that she sends them DMs on Twitter. I reached out to them, asking why Casey Anthony chooses them, a UK-based publication, to talk to, but I didn't get a response. By then, it had been over a decade since Kaylee died. Casey herself didn't comment on the anniversary, but newspapers didn't forget it. The Orlando Sentinel revisited the case in 2018, re-interviewing people involved with it. The chief of the Orange County Sheriff's Criminal Investigations Division emphasized that even then, 10 years later, no one could definitively say how Kaylee died. Tell me exactly what happened to her, he asked the journalist. Tell me where she was and tell me how she was killed. Of course, no one could tell him that, which is exactly why the jury let Casey go. The journalist who wrote that article revisited the wooded area where Kaylee's skeleton was found. It was quiet now, she wrote, with a tiny memorial at the end of a short path worn by visitors' footsteps. There are bunches of fake flowers and a few stuffed animals that wear away every time it rains. There used to be a large cross there, too, but when George and Cindy did one of their interviews, cameras filmed them as they walked over to the cross and took it down. Where is Casey Anthony now? You can find articles with titles like that on websites for A&E, USA Today, In Touch Weekly. They know that you want to know. But let's be honest. People don't care about Casey Anthony the same way that they used to, just like people don't care the same way about OJ. People are interested. People get outraged. People use them as punchlines on Twitter. People do podcast episodes about them. But people aren't protesting their alleged crimes in the streets anymore. Take a look at social media, for example. Back in 2011, after Casey's trial, there were groups with names like I Hate Casey Anthony with 37,000 likes and The Jury Failed Kaylee with 10,000 likes. Today, there's a group called I Bet I Can Find One Million People Who Hate Casey Anthony and it has 62 members. One of the biggest anti-Anthony Facebook groups is called Casey Anthony Discussions and Updates, with only 3,500 members. And I posted in it recently, asking people why they still follow the case after 10 years. Because justice was not served and a small innocent life was taken, said one member. Another said that she was just waiting for her to fuck up again. She won't be so lucky the next time. A third said... Because we want to know why this flea-infested, crab-infested wench got away with killing her child. These are passionate responses, but the group of people just waiting for her to fuck up again has grown smaller and smaller over the years. We're not even three months into 2021 yet, and Casey has already made the news twice. She filed paperwork at the end of 2020 to open a private investigation company called 
Case Research and Consulting Services, LLC. In January, a source told People magazine, she knows what it's like to be accused of something that she didn't do. She wants to help other wrongfully accused people, especially women, and help them get justice. This is not the first time Casey's tried to open a business. She tried to open a photo studio called Case Photography in 2015 and had to formally dissolve it three years later. The other news item is that Casey is working on an authorized documentary. This has been claimed before, but this time it's official. I reached out to one of the producers of the documentary, Ebony Porter-Ike, and her assistant confirmed that the project is real. It looks like we're finally going to get Casey's side of the story in full technicolor. Where is Casey Anthony now? No one knows, really. No one knows exactly what her life is like today. I suspect she spends most of her time inside. I bet she spends a lot of time on the internet. I wouldn't be surprised if she reads what people write about her. I suspect her life is depressing and fruitless. She seems to want a job, but I doubt she'll ever manage any sort of career. When her photography business tried to post on Twitter, people would respond to each tweet with photos of Kaylee, reminding her, reminding her. I almost wonder if Casey Anthony misses going to court. At least it was something to do. Now she has to stay inside, surrounded by photos of her daughter who never reached her third birthday. If the prosecution's story was true, and Casey did kill her daughter to live a life of freedom, a bella vita, then Casey failed miserably at it. She's in a prison of a different sort now, and she'll be there for life. The end. I want to have some big concluding, like, outro-y thought here that you can all take away. But I, my brain is so fried from doing all that Casey Anthony research. There's so much out there. There are so many rabbit holes. There are so many tabloid reports. There's so much weird stuff. There are so many rumors. There are so many allegations. There's so many photos. It's just, whew. So my brain is like... Let's just say if we're going to make it an egg metaphor, it's the scrambled eggs before you started to scramble them. Just sitting limply in a bowl. Um, but anyway, let me know what you thought of the episode. I, I hope I'm sure you all have thoughts on Casey Anthony. So send them to me on Instagram, criminalbroads at gmail.com, wherever you want to get in touch. I'd love to hear them. And I'd like to thank this week's patrons for making this episode possible. Thank you to Milk Mom, Jennifer and Jessica M for your support. I really appreciate it. All right, we'll be back next week with another story. And until then, have a lovely time, and I'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.